You're listening to the New World of Work podcast by the McKinsey Global Institute. We're exploring the future of work, how automation technologies, including artificial intelligence and robotics, could disrupt how we work, where we work, the skills and education we need to work, and what we can do to prepare for these transitions today. Welcome to our latest podcast in the series on the new world of work. I'm Peter Gumbel at the McKinsey Global Institute, and today we're going to be examining the outlook for occupations and skills and wages. And uh, we're here to do that today with Susan Lund, who is a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute based in Washington, and Michael Chewy, who is a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute based in San Francisco. And our starting point is the new MGI report on the future of work, which is called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained, Workforce Transitions in a Time of Automation. Now, one of the major findings of that report is that between 75 million and 375 million people around the world may need to change occupational categories and acquire new skills by the year 2030. Let's start off by discussing that in some detail. First, perhaps Michael, you'd like to start. How did we arrive at these numbers? Well, this is built on previous work that we did on the potential effects of automation. Uh, These are technologies including artificial intelligence and physical robotics. And basically what we try to do is, first of all, understand which activities in the global workforce potentially could be automated. So we looked at not only every occupation in the global workforce, but all of their constituent activities, about 2,000 of them, and tried to understand the pace at which those potentially could be automated by adapting technologies which exist today and technologies which might be developed in the future. And so we modeled those out, those activities which might be automated out to the year 2030 and considered those which again, in other words, that the machines might take over for things that people do. But we also tried to understand what the impact might be of other catalysts for additional demand for human labor. And so we looked at seven different catalysts, which we thought could significantly increase the demand for human labor, even net of those activities which might be automated. So they include the following. You know, one is rising incomes or rising prosperity around the world. We'll have another billion people uh, entering the consuming class during the next couple of decades. Then we also have aging around the world, and that drives need for additional labor in healthcare, for instance. We have the need to develop and and deploy these technologies themselves, digitization, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence. And so that actually requires people. And we also have the potential to invest in infrastructure and real estate and buildings and bridges, et cetera. And all that construction could drive additional need for uh, human demand, even though you know our own MGI productivity research says more and more of that potential could be automated. We'll have changes in the energy mix. We'll have smart grids. We'll have the need in order to change the generation of energy. And then there's a tremendous amount of unpaid labor in in the global workforce. This is, uh, in many cases, domestic work that's often done by women, whether it's childcare, cleaning, cooking, et cetera. And more and more of that could enter the market as well. And so then we look at the net of that, all of the potential jobs lost, those things that machines might take over, and then the potential jobs gained, the additional demand for human labor that can come from these seven catalysts. Is that an exhaustive list in your mind, or are there other factors out there that could create new labor demand in the future? 
you know, we know we can't predict the future completely. And so we do think those seven catalysts of additional labor demand are very important. We started with a list of 20 and, and that filtered down to the ones that we thought would be most significant. But we also know we can't imagine every job that uh, possibly could be developed. You know, right now we have a bunch of people whose job is app developer for mobile smartphones. Those aren't jobs that, you know, I don't think anyone necessarily imagined a couple decades ago. In fact, there's an academic research report that says, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, one half percent uh, new jobs every year of the entire population are new. And so by 2030, we could be looking at another, you know, eight to nine percent uh, of jobs in that time period, which simply don't exist today. And, and again, how many more new jobs and new types of occupations might get generated is something that could change over time, depending on how innovative the economy is, how much we invest in, in innovation, research, development. Uh, and so that's something that's potentially new. It's important to note that the seven catalysts that we look at, we don't think are all the sources of future labor demand. For example, we don't use a dynamic model that takes into account the fact that when somebody gets a job, they then go out and start to spend money on all sorts of goods and services, and that indeed creates other jobs. So it's good news that we find that in most countries, the problem is not that there won't be enough work by 2030 for people to do. Okay, well, let's perhaps look at what this actually means for some specific occupations. Susan, perhaps you could give us some examples. On the one hand, jobs that may decline because of these trends, but also, on the other hand, the jobs that actually may grow because of them. And this is actually a big fear out there right now, that the robots are coming, they're going to take all their jobs, there's going to be nothing for people to do. In fact, our results show quite, I think, convincingly that the problem is not will there be jobs? But there is a big question about will the workers today, given their existing skill sets, actually be qualified to get the jobs that there will be? So where do we see job growth? Well, it depends very much on the country you're looking at. In developing countries that are growing rapidly, like India, there's job growth across virtually all occupations, and there will be demand for all sorts of different types of labor. In advanced economies, the impact of automation over the next 10 to 15 years will very likely be higher, and that's simply because of the wage structure. We make the, I think, reasonable assumption that companies don't adopt automation technologies until the cost of buying them and deploying them at least equates to the cost of labor. So in advanced economies, we see much bigger turnover in future jobs. On one hand, given what Michael told us about the catalyst, we can see that many types of occupations will grow. For instance, all sorts of care providers. Aging populations, we know, will mean that there will be growth in demand for doctors, nurses, elder care workers, all sorts of healthcare-related occupations. We also see that managers and executives are going to be needed everywhere, including a whole range of professionals. This includes IT and computer-related professionals, but also engineers, scientists, account managers, etc. This is because automation technologies today are much better at doing some things rather than others, and applying expertise is something that, at least in the time frame we're looking at, um, humans will have a comparative advantage at. We also see, though, some interesting categories of job growth that may be less obvious. Things, for instance, like creative occupations, like artists, entertainers, painters, writers. This is because 
while there have been some gains in the emotional and creative aspects of artificial intelligence, humans still hold a clear advantage. Other jobs, like that of a CEO or a legislator or a psychiatrist, also don't look to be very automatable. Michael, what about uh, your view of these jobs of the future? Which do you think will be the ones that grow and which will be the ones that are likely to decline? Well, certainly, as Susan mentioned, uh, you know, we're going to see, you know, different catalysts catalyze uh, additional demand for labor, right? Again, so again, if you if you look at additional investment in infrastructure and buildings, we'll see more on the construction side. If we continue to see increasing need for uh, healthcare, we'll see those types of uh, skilled workers in the healthcare professions. But again, we also see that there are some types of activities which have a greater propensity to be automated. So for instance, physical activities and predictable environments. And so we'll see probably an increasing amount of these workers who are on assembly lines, the amount of demand for that labor is likely to go down. We'll also see people who are collecting data and processing data. A lot of people in office support jobs or people who are processing financial and other transactions, that's very predictable work. And even though it's not physical work, it's, it's predictable work in collecting data and processing data. And so again, uh, we on balance would likely see a less of that, uh, particularly when the technology reaches a stage at which it is lower cost uh, than employing human labor for those activities. Okay. One of the themes of the report is that jobs will also change Perhaps, Susan, you can tell us about that. And in what way do jobs actually change as as this technology takes hold? Well, there are going to be big shifts in which occupations grow and which decline. I think an even more important or at least equally important trend is that all of our occupations are going to change. So overall, we find that, for instance, in 60% of jobs, 30% of the activities that people do in that job could be automated. This means that what people do will shift. A good example is what happened to bank tellers in the United States after the introduction of ATM machines. So back in the 1980s, bank tellers spent a large portion of their time simply collecting cash from customers to deposit into accounts or handing out cash. Well, this was entirely automated by the growth of ATMs. So you might think that the number of bank tellers declined dramatically, but in fact, the number of bank tellers increased. But what they do is very different. Now, the reason the number increased is that ATMs made bank branches much less costly to operate. And so the number of bank branches actually exploded across the country. And that required more tellers, even though there were fewer bank tellers in each branch. What the tellers did, though, is very different. Today, they spend a very small portion of their time handing out cash and and doing transactions. And instead, they help customers sign up for different sorts of financial products and services, like credit cards or mortgages or different types of saving deposit accounts. Now, today, with the growth of internet banking, it turns out that the number of bank tellers is starting to decline. But for a good period of 20 years, the number of bank tellers grew even as ATMs took off. Michael, do you want to add anything to that about the about the changing occupations? Do you see other types of occupations changing? Yeah, I mean, again, as, as Susan said, historically, we've seen this over and over again. I mean, again, there was a time when 
you know, secretaries, as we call them, did things like take dictation, you know, type out things that somebody said, et cetera. And now they're doing, you know, much more complex tasks, which involves negotiation, whether it's negotiating about schedule or procurement and, and many other tasks as well. And then going forward, we expect to see the same thing. And you know, even computer coders, uh, the practice of coding is different now than it was a couple decades ago. And we will see that continue to change over time. We see more and more of these software tool vendors who are, in fact, automating pieces of a software developer's job. Uh, which previously someone would have to do manually. And we expect to continue to see that over and over again, this idea of tooling occupations. That applies in the physical realm as well. We're seeing more and more automation on a factory floor. And again, people doing complementary things. And so, you know, as, as Eric Benjolfsson and Andy McAfee have said too, you know, it's, it's a great thing to be a complement of the things that machines are doing over time. I would also point out, though, that there will be differences in how fast automation and AI technologies are adopted based on social norms. So even today, for instance, airline pilots spend only a small fraction of their time actually flying the airplane. And yet every flight we get on has two pilots in the cockpit. Now, social norms are dictating that, you know, pilots need to be there in case of an emergency. And that may continue to be the case even as autopilot technologies get better and better. Or maybe there won't be two, but at least one. Same thing for things like a radiologist. Today, there are AI algorithms that can read x-rays and make diagnoses better than the best experts in the world. And yet, it doesn't mean that there won't be radiologists. We'll still need a doctor to explain the results to a patient and then talk about what the different options are for their diagnosis or treatment. Okay, one uh, specific question about the report that the McKinsey Global Institute has just come out with on the future of work. The headline or one of the headline numbers in that report was about people having to change occupational categories. Can you perhaps explain quickly what do you mean by that? Yeah, we categorize 800 occupations into 58 categories. And this is our shorthand way of showing, with a more limited taxonomy, how work might shift between them. So for instance, there's a whole classification around customer interaction jobs, and that includes cashiers, call service representatives, etc. So by grouping occupations into these categories, we can then start to talk about which ones are growing and which are declining. And the number that you referred to in the beginning, Peter, that somewhere between 75 million and 375 million people may need to switch occupational category means that they're in an occupation and in a set of occupations that's actually shrinking in number. So some of those people are going to have to go shift to one of the growing occupational categories. So this is a big shift. It's different than just saying, well, I'm one type of specialty nurse, and now I need to become a different type. That would be a shift within an occupational category. So here, the changes we're talking about are very significant. It's about somebody who may have been working in trucking or manufacturing, learning to do something entirely different possibly a job in construction or healthcare or other types of things. And this will require more than simply applying for that job. It will require some level of formal training to learn the new skills to become qualified to get that new job. And this will be the defining challenge of our generation, we think, is creating the programs and tools and opportunities for somebody who's mid-career 
with a mortgage, with children who can't afford to go back to school for maybe two years to get an associate's degree or four years to get a bachelor's, but helping that person get the bare minimum of skills they need to get their foot in the door in an entirely different occupation and then start off on a career ladder in an entirely new direction. Susan, you just brought up the issue of skills. Obviously, this is a huge topic that's very, very much in the news. Michael, in your work on automation, you've looked at what machines can and can't do very well. Perhaps you can talk to us about that. Where are we in terms of the actual technical capabilities of machines? Yeah, I mean, every day we seem to be seeing headlines about these amazing things that machines can do. And indeed, we do see these real big technical uh, advances over time. But, you know, now we do know that there are places where machines do things very well. So, for instance, in some uh, sensory capabilities, you know, machines in, can detect light in, in, in different spectra that, that people can't. In some ways, that's even superhuman. But the ability to actually categorize different objects in the physical field, that's something machines are still working on, or we are still working on building machines that can do that. Similarly, in, the, in, in terms of physical activities, you, we do have machines who can lift more than any human being can. But again, the ability to do fine motor skills, in fact, to have all of the sensory and, and flexibility of the human hand to be able to move things like fabrics, it's actually very difficult to have robots do that. And so that's a challenge. And then on the cognitive side, you know, Andrew Ng, who's a, a you know, famous machine learning expert, has said, look, almost anything that a, a person can do with their brain within one second is something that machine learning is able to do. And we're finding that to be increasingly true to, to do categorization very quickly. But then this idea of being able to understand natural language, even though we see more and more of that, you know, these machines and our phones who, you know, we can talk to them. Again, they don't do that at the level that, you know, even a median human performance can perform. And so whether it's natural language, whether it's understanding and recognizing human emotions, which again, we're teaching machines how to do, but they can't do it as well as humans yet. And so for, in all of these categories, we sometimes see increasing and surprising advancements in the technology. And yet we should celebrate just how hard these things are because, you know, any person in many cases does some of these activities better than machines do. So what does that actually mean in terms of the workplace skills that we're going to be needing in the next 15, 20 years? Susan, how do you view that? Are there specific skills that we're going to need more of in order to essentially compete better with the machines? Yeah, so the demand for humans is going to be for the skills that machines aren't good at doing. And so that's social and emotional skills, creativity, and applying high levels of cognitive function and expertise. So let's take social and emotional. You know, there's a whole range of jobs in healthcare and teaching, care provision, um, therapists that rely on a lot of social and emotional cues and being able to read how other people are feeling. These skills are going to be more and more needed. It's interesting that schools don't really focus on this. We still talk a lot about IQ, but much less about somebody's emotional quotient or EQ. That EQ is going to become more and more important in any field. We also see that school curriculum for now don't seem to be taking into account these changes. And in fact, most public education systems in the United States look you know, very similar to what they look like 30 years ago. Uh, students can graduate with two years of calculus, but have no requirements, for instance, to learn computer coding or engineering. So I think that for people looking forward, of course, anyone with an aptitude for math and science, that's going to be a good bet. STEM fields, um, in fact, will be growing. And maybe even what we call STEAM fields. So adding the 
arts to that and the creative thinking and the ability to learn from a pattern in one field and apply that analogously to a different field. These are all things that humans are still much better doing than machines. And if I could add to that what Susan said as well, um, in addition to understanding STEAM, et cetera, I think there's another lesson that comes from the fact as we look at the potential impact of these technologies over time, changing what everyone does over time, there's a set of meta skills to be learned here. So this ability to learn how to learn, because again, what we'll need to do is in fact, everyone's job is going to change. What everyone does, it, what will be complementary to the machines is going to change over time. And so again, these ideas of flexibility and agility, grit, resilience and continuing to be able to learn how to learn. Um, that's something that we need to you know, all understand, but also instill in people as an expectation and also something that you can train to do over time. You know, Michael, what you said is absolutely right about lifelong learning. And it's something that has been a bit of a mantra in the educational field that everyone's going to have to, you know, be a student for life and, and embark on lifelong learning. But the fact is right now, it's still mainly a slogan. Even within jobs and companies, you know, there's not lifelong training. In fact, what we see in corporate training data, at least in the United States, is that companies are spending less. And as we know right now, people expect that they get their education in their early 20s or late 20s, and then they're done. And then they're going to go off and work for 40 to 50 years. And that model of getting education up front and then working for many decades without ever going through formal or informal training again is clearly not going to be the reality for the next generation. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things we have to ask the question, is that something that needs to change? And then how do we actually get that done? Um, you know, that's, again, as you said, we always say, look, we need to improve K through 12 education and you know, we, we, can we improve college education? But, you know, again, if everyone's job is going to change, how do we actually fund and successfully create programs that allow people to retrain over time? Well, here's where technology might actually provide some of the solution, because right now we can take online courses. And there are a number of companies that have started to partner with universities to enable their entire workforce to take online courses. And it might be to learn a new skill that's applicable within that company, or just to learn new skills and make a career shift. So AT&T is an example of a company that set up a program to enable its workforce to learn digital skills that, it, that are going to be needed uh, through online courses with Georgia Tech, whereas Starbucks and Amazon are enabling, after a certain period of tenure with a company, baristas and warehouse workers at Amazon to go earn online degrees and have the tuition paid for to prepare for careers that may be outside of that company. So maybe more of this type of experimenting of people working, but also learning either at night or online might be more of a model for the future. I absolutely agree. And I think what's interesting is on these online courses, you can apply some of this artificial intelligence and analytics to improving uh, the education and the training that people get in order to figure out, you know, what educational pathway is actually going to be most effective. Math teaching, for instance, right? Is it better to learn trigonometry or algebra first in order to be successful in calculus or statistics? Those kind of questions might be different for individual learners. But not only, you know, not, not only just the online courses, but these mixed mode courses too, which 
combine some live teacher training along with the online course, oftentimes those are quite effective. And in fact, you know, there's some interesting recent research which says the people who need the education the most, the most challenged learners actually need more of that live connection with a live instructor. And so again, mixing those modes in an appropriate way and again, you know, customizing the education or learning for an individual learner could be one way in which we use technology to try to solve these problems that technology is, is causing. You're both students of the history of technology and the role of technology in changing employment. When you look at the the situation today and you look at the challenges that, that you've outlined in this report, how do you place that into a historical context? And in particular, around the skills and the, and the retraining, I mean, have we seen this before? There's no guarantee the future is going to be like the past, but we are encouraged by some of what we've seen in the past. Again, you know, we've seen, you know, the, the percentage of people in agriculture in the U.S. go from 40 percent in 1900 to less than 2 percent, you know, less than a century later. We don't have 35 percent unemployment in the U.S. In fact, you know, we've been able to create new jobs, new occupations, new demand for labor. But at the same time, we've actually had to make great investments in in education for that to happen. There was a high school movement, an actual social movement that occurred where, in fact, you know, at the beginning of that story, the beginning of 1900, there wasn't universal secondary school in the United States. And because of this social movement, it became true. We had the GI Bill for, you know, veterans coming back from the Second World War. Again, millions of Americans then were enabled to go to tertiary education, to go to college. And so, again, one of the questions is going forward, you know, what are the analogous sets of investments that have to be made? So in fact, as we go through this new trend of disruption, this new trend of displacement, that we can in fact retrain people so that they can continue to do the work that we know there'll be demand for going forward. And I would add this situation today is really challenging though, Michael, because I mentioned that you see corporate training spending has been declining. And in fact, you can look across the OECD and see that government spending on workforce training has also been declining. And in fact, on labor market policies in general. Now, you might argue that that spending wasn't terribly effective, which is a different question. But the fact is, we're moving in the wrong direction on actually raising workforce skills. And certainly in the United States since 1980, you know, the educational attainment of the population has changed very little. So it's not like we're still on an upward trajectory of of the workforce becoming more and more educated over time. So that's something that we're going to really need a concerted effort to change both the trend in less spending and the plateauing of, of educational attainment in the U.S. And the effectiveness of education as well. And so again, you know, the only reason I'm optimistic is because I think the future is made up of choices we can make today. And so if we choose to work on creating more effective and efficient retraining systems, you know, I'm hopeful uh, that we're actually be able to make the same analogous types of investments we have historically and be able to shift the workforce. But as you said, this is a real challenge. There are times in history which didn't turn out that well. We sometimes you know, joke about the Luddites and how much they hated technology. At the same time, they weren't wrong. In fact, during that time period, there were a few decades during which wages stagnated for people who's, uh, who were displaced by automation. And so how do we make sure that doesn't happen um, in this wave of technology? You've raised the issue of wages, Michael. What in your research, uh, Susan and Michael, are you seeing about the implications for wages from this current wave of technology with automation? 
Well, we don't model how wages might change for any given occupation, but we can say two things. We can say, look, when we look at the growth or decline of specific occupations at today's wage levels, we see that in some countries, including the United States, that the polarization of opportunities may continue. So we see a lot of growth in high-wage occupations. We see growth in the lowest wage occupations, but we see net declines in all the occupations that are sort of in the middle of the income uh, distribution. So that's problematic. The second thing we know is that if, in fact, a lot of workers are displaced in particular occupations, and if they don't get the skills needed to get those high-wage, higher-skill jobs, we may see a glut of people chasing a shrinking pool of low-skill work and as an economist, I'd have to believe that supply and demand mean wages may fall. So it's a real issue that we're going to have to address. And I think one of the most important solutions is to make sure that we develop short-term training programs for mid-career people to get the skills they need to get the good jobs that are being created and not chase after a shrinking pool of low-skill, low-wage jobs. I think it's also important to the point about making choices that, in fact, you know, where wage rates sit is not something that's just, you know, magically determined. There are countries in which there are jobs which in the United States don't pay very much, where in other places they've decided, you know, these are important, valuable jobs. We want to have the best people in working in them or a higher level talent. And so they choose to pay more. So whether or not it's for teachers, for uh, public sector executives, uh, whether it's for uh, nursing. And so I think that, you know, part of it are choices that we can make as a society about how much people should be paid. Okay, well, let's come to an end with uh, the big question, which is, should we be optimistic or should we be pessimistic about what's going to happen in the next 10, 15 years? I would say we should be cautiously optimistic. On one hand, all these new technologies do offer a lot of benefits to society. We're in a period where productivity growth has been very low, and adoption of some of these new automation and AI technologies could in fact raise productivity growth and create a new era, maybe like the late 1990s, where we start to actually see the economic benefits of all these new digital technologies and other technologies. That would be welcome. We also can see, as Michael pointed out, machines and AI can now do things better than humans. So we have a shot at solving some of society's greatest challenges. However, um, as we've discussed now in this podcast, the big challenge is going to be really changing our thinking about how we help workers adjust to this these transitions and how we make lifelong learning and shifting careers of reality, not just a mantra. And that's going to be a challenge that we haven't seen any country really face yet to date. And so we're in uncharted territory. So it's concerning, but I think that if we grapple with the issue now and make the right choices, that this could be um, a great boon to humanity and, and to workers as well. Like Susan, I'm concerned. I'm concerned because we don't necessarily know in exactly how to get through this transition. And I'm concerned because we do know that people are going to lose their jobs. And that's painful. And it's difficult. And, and unfortunately, it will happen. 
but I'm enthusiastically optimistic because, in fact, we need this productivity badly. We don't have enough workers because of aging in order to have the economic growth that we all want to have. So we need all the robots and AI that we can get. We just need to be able to redeploy labor into the jobs of the future. And we've been able to do that in the past, and those were challenges in the past, and I'm hopeful, and it's just necessary that we figure out how to do that in the future. And so I'm optimistic about it in total. Well, thank you, both of you, for that very interesting discussion. You've been listening to Susan Lunds and Michael Chewy. Susan is a partner at the McKinsey Global Institute based in Washington, D.C., and Michael is a McKinsey Global Institute partner based in San Francisco. And they've been discussing automation and occupations and skills and wages and what the next 10 to 15 years could look like. Thank you very much for joining us. That was the latest in our podcast series on the new world of work. This is Peter Gumbel at the McKinsey Global Institute, and we would invite you to listen to other podcasts in this series. And if you'd like to download our report, the report that was discussed during this podcast, it's called Jobs Lost, Jobs Gained, Workforce Transitions in a Time of Automation, and it's available on the McKinsey Global Institute website, which is www.mckinsey.com slash MGI. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the new world of work by the McKinsey Global Institute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate us on iTunes and share this podcast with your friends. To learn more about the research discussed in today's episode, visit mckinsey.com slash MGI or follow at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Thank you.